Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area, but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Mark chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down through verse 6. Mark chapter 6 verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country. This is talking about Jesus. So he is returning to his own region, the parts that he came from. Where he came from, down in the sticks. So he returns and it says, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And then notice what it says. So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except... In other words, he's saying a prophet has honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. Notice, Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. And for most, if not all of 2023, not 2013, like you all were messed up in Sunday school this morning, but in 2023, I'm going to be committing the unpardonable sin in many reform circles. By preaching a mixture of topical and textual sermons. Now, these sermons are in the category of things you need to know, and that's basically the theme. Things you need to know. Things that we need to know. Things that the church in 2023 in America needs to know. So it will include biblical events, doctrines, practices, principles, some shocking, some embarrassing, some controversial, but all of it things you need to know. 
We live in a day of deconstruction, and when the foundations are destroyed, there are some fundamental things that must be restored if we're ever going to truly engage in rebuilding anything. But like I said in Sunday school, if you can't find your starting point, you're not going to find your ending point. And you're going to be off course, in between. And so, there's a lot of things that need to be restored if we're ever going to truly engage in rebuilding and restoring Christianity. Restoring the church. The way things are, we just can't get there from here. So there's a lot of reorientation that needs to take place with each and every one of us. And we're going to be covering some of those things uh, throughout the year. So this is what we're going to do, even though, even among all the jeers and sneers for our lack of expositional preaching in 2023... Even though what most people believe to be expositional preaching really is not expositional. It's really topical and textual preaching that is categorized within a book. But, regardless, when I say jeers and sneers, and that's if anyone outside of our specific company of friends, which is very small, is even listening anymore or much less if they care but that's fine because we don't care either in that what we are concerned with is building a faithful church of practicing christians in the biblical and historical understanding of christianity my concern for you or us is not that I don't care about the broader state of Christianity, but my concern is specifically and directly for you and us. But there is not really much that I can do about the broader state of Christianity. Right? That is something we need to be very aware of and concerned about in a lot of aspects. Because a lot of times we're so concerned about things we can't do anything about that we become useless where we could do something about something. See, I can't correct the divorce rate throughout all of America, but I can be a faithful husband to my wife. I can do something about that. I can try to instruct my children. I can try to be an influence among my neighbors, friends, relatives. So, it's kind of like in the political realm today. When guys get so focused on Washington, D.C., which among people I know, now I'm not saying there are not other people out there, but I'm talking to you. Right? I'm talking to me. I'm talking about people I know. Out of the people I know, there really isn't much they can do about it. Name me one thing that anyone that you know throughout the course of your life who has individually done 
that has actually influenced anything in Washington, D.C. Now tell me all the time they've spent on it. Yeah, that's... When you talk about a cost-benefit analysis, (laughs) it's a lot of wasted time and money. And so... A lot of people get so focused on Washington, D.C., which is something they cannot do much about. And again, I'm talking about the people that I typically know, the people I live among. But, however, they could do something locally, but they have no interest or energy to do it. Well, we're seeing the same thing in the ecclesiastical realm, in the church, because everyone wants to be a national influencer, but no one wants to be a local Christian. So, regardless, our purpose is to reacquaint ourselves with lost knowledge, understanding, and discernment from the Bible due to our negligence of important topical and textual elements. With every action, there's a consequence, right? Everything you do has a consequence. Everything I do has a consequence. And one of the consequences of book-by-book preaching in this context in which we are living today is that there's not a lot of groundwork that is being laid that is essential in a day when this foundational framework has been lost. We're missing too many pieces to make our expositional preaching effective. So we can spend five, six, seven years in the book of Hebrews and no one knows what in the world we're talking about. Right? Because you need to know the book of Leviticus. Because it's all about the sacrificial system. And so we spend all this time in the book of Hebrews and everyone's just like... Right? Because we don't know the book of Leviticus. We don't know what all is going on in Hebrews. Calves and blood and sacrifices and offerings and incense and what in the world? And so we miss everything that the writer of Hebrews is trying to give to us because we're lost. So some of the causes of this include our, includes our reduction of divine services. I mean, 52 sermons in a year, if you're able to round up and say an hour, which they're not, because we most of the time can't tolerate an hour-long sermon. So you're talking about an hour a week maximum. Well, so some of the causes includes our reduction of divine services and Bible studies. And I'm talking about true Bible studies. I'm not talking about Beth Moore's book. I'm talking about actual Bible studies. Um, Then you include the elimination of prayer services and Sunday school. And you start looking at what all we've reduced everything from, no catechism classes, nothing. It's no wonder we have became biblically illiterate. 
And another cause is people just don't spend much time in spiritual things on their own, like reading the Bible, prayer, so forth. We're too occupied with entertainment, and yes, that includes Christian entertainment. And one of the big ones is social media Christian entertainment, because that's all it is, right? It's entertainment. It's how people get their kicks. It's the dopamine rush, the excitement, and all that kind of stuff. It's entertainment. But our problem today is that we do not base and center our time, schedules, lifestyle, and so on on Christ. We have reduced Christianity down to a one-hour inactive period of time. And that's what Christianity is. Even though the Bible talks about morning prayer and evening prayer... Our schedules aren't centered around that. Um, We can find all kinds of different things. Um, Our calendars. We can't even schedule our calendars around Christ anymore. And the reason is because we've reduced Christianity down to nothing. So that's one of the big problems. We're completely secularized today. Right? Right? We are completely secular, and we've been secularized, except, and most of the time it's usually in private, but except that we will profess a belief in Christ. It's just that we do not practice life in Christ. So we are suffering from reductionist measures in our attempt to attract the world, but we are not attracting anyone, and all that is really happening is that the church is being weakened so that it cannot reach anybody, and it is to the point of being on life support today. So the first thing I want to focus on this morning, and so throughout 2023, we're going to be dealing with things that you need to know in order for us to try to start turning this ship in the right direction. So the first thing I want to smoke focus upon this morning is the fact that pastors, elders, you can throw in deacons, pastors, elders, deacons, leaders within the church, they're no angels. I know it's shocking. I know it's devastating, but they're not. Now, in 1955, there was a Humphrey Bogart movie called We're No Angels. Anyone ever see that? It takes place on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and there's three convicts who escape from prison on Christmas Eve. There's a thief and two murderers. And, of course, the town is at their disposal and so forth. And so my play is off that title. Pastors are no angels. Elders are no angels. So even though I'm playing off of that title, it's not to imply that pastors or elders are convicts. Whether thieves or murderers, as in the film, or criminals of any type. Even though some pastors and elders are criminals. Some of them have a license to steal on religious broadcasting TV. 
But regardless, all pastors are sinners, all elders are sinners, we're no angels. Now I was expecting a few more amens at that point. I mean, that should have been been a given. If there was ever a time to say amen, I figured that would be one of them. Now, pastors and elders are a common, ordinary means that God has instituted in the church. And so the the sermon this morning is going to be simple. Two main parts with several subpoints, but two main points with several subpoints. And the two main points is the evidence from our text and the application of our text. So first, let's consider the evidence or the facts of our text so that we might make a right application of this event and the teaching of it. First of all, notice the ministry of Jesus. Notice we're talking about Jesus when it says he went out from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him. And then it says that when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. So first, we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about the ministry of Jesus. So, who is Jesus? Well, remember the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it declares, in quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, in application to Jesus... In his birth, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Who is Jesus? God manifested in the flesh, according to Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. This is the Messiah of whom it is declared that it is the Lord. It is Jehovah who has came to condescend to mankind and redeem them. Save them from their sins and save them from their enemies. To establish his kingdom and his rule and reign over all of the earth until all kingdoms and all people bow before him. This is God manifested in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. The God man. Yes, Jesus is a prophet, but he is the true type from which all other prophets represent. He is greater than Moses, greater than Isaiah, greater than Jeremiah. Yes, Jesus is a priest, but he is the priest. He is the true type that all other priests represent. Jesus is greater than Aaron, greater than Phinehas, greater than Hilkiah. Yes, Jesus is a king, but he is the king. He is the true type that all other kings represent. Jesus is greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than Josiah. You see, Jesus is perfection. This was the Son of God and Son of Man who did not come to be ministered to, but came to minister to the world. The ministry that begins after his baptism by John is the ministry of God manifested in the flesh. You can't ask for anything more, can you? Is there anything more to ask for? Well, no. Second, notice the teaching of Jesus. It is said here in our text that those who heard him were astonished at his wisdom. I would say that 
goes hand in hand, right? God manifested in the flesh, and he starts speaking. Uh, You're going to be astonished. Like, my goodness, where did this wisdom come from? This is incredible. I've never heard such. So, they were astonished at his wisdom. And then it says, they were astonished at the wisdom that produced these mighty works that performed by him. So he wasn't just like this orator that was opining about everything under the sun, right? We've known, and we are that way a lot ourselves, right? Yep. We can go on and on and on and on. Not much comes from it, but we have lots of words. But Jesus not only had words, but his words produced things. When was the last time, or even, I'll ask it in this way, have you ever? And I'm talking about actuality. I am not talking about acknowledging something as true. I'm not talking about acknowledging something as good. I am asking, when was the last time or have you ever been astonished at a sermon or a teaching? Astonished? Have you been wowed so greatly that it has stunned you? It has stricken you dumb with sudden fear or terror or surprise or wonder? Has it caused you to just be amazed? To be confounded with sudden passion? Now, we can be amazed and have wonderment that at creation and the mystery of all of that. But usually the sermon's not too mysterious. There's not much to wonder and awe at. Unless we're awing for the wrong reasons. You know, like the guy that all the men want to look like and be like. And all the women want to be with because of his good looks and charm and charisma. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about at the teaching. I seriously don't know that I can ever say that there's been something that grand that I've ever heard. To where I was just struck with complete amazement. To be astonished. Now, there is another event recorded in Luke chapter 4 where it said that all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, talking about Jesus' teaching, were filled with wrath. Now, I have had that reaction. Right? Both in listening and in presenting. 
<laughs> so I have sat there and been mad at what I've heard. And I've also had people sitting there mad at what they're hearing. But never astonishment. Never astonishment. And yet the people who heard him were amazed at his teaching. But then according to Paul, you know, our job, as we have been commissioned as pastors, as ministers, to proclaim the word of God, we're not supposed to preach in order to amaze with my wisdom. First of all, I don't have any wisdom to amaze with, so you might as well not try, right? Paul says it's a foolish endeavor in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says it is a foolish endeavor, which is the reason why young preachers need a whole lot of guidance. Because many times that's what they're preaching to, right? Trying to impress people with their wisdom. But Paul says it's a foolish endeavor. And then secondly, Paul says we are to preach Christ. Not our wisdom. We're to preach Christ. Everything is supposed to be pointing to Christ, who is our wisdom. He's our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. It's all wrapped up in him. That's the reason why the spotlight should go that direction on Christ. But notice a few more statements about Christ's preaching and teaching. In Mark chapter 1, in verse 21, it says, And when they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. In Luke chapter 4, verse 31, it says, And they came down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath's days, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. Jesus had and has perfect holiness, perfect works, perfect words, perfect talents, perfect abilities, perfect doctrine. That's why they were astonished. But next, let's notice the response of the people. So with all that being said about Jesus, you would think that there would be nothing but fanfare and reception by the people. But this is not actually the case. Notice the response of the people. Now, when we start noticing the response of the people, we notice that they begin to ask these certain questions. And then it says that they were offended at him. And then it says that they did not believe. And Jesus didn't perform any major miracles there because of their unbelief. And their unbelief was so much so that it says that Jesus marveled. Marveled at it. Now, we sometimes think that it's nothing but fanfare and excitement with the ministry of Jesus. And the reason is because of our proof texting from a lot of reductionism that's based upon statements that you find in Scripture, like in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 25, where it says, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. 
Matthew 8, 1, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Matthew 9, verse 8, and when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men, talking about Jesus. And then it says that when a demon was cast out, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled and said, it was never seen like this in Israel. Matthew 12, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he had to go out in a boat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. In Matthew chapter 21, as he's entering Jerusalem, five days before his crucifixion, it says there were multitudes who went before him, and those who followed him, crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna to the highest! Where were they five days later? You see, throughout the ministry of Jesus, and throughout the Gospels, you've got to remember he's traveling around all these different places. There's always fanfare and reception at first. Everywhere he goes. But in every example, the multitudes disappear. Why? You see, the reality is really quite different than many times what we think, because we forget about the multitudes that are following Jesus in John chapter 6. And after his teaching in John chapter 6, it says, After that, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Even his disciples said, this is a hard saying. But we find this example, Paul writing to Timothy, talking about Demas, Cretans, Titus, different people departing different places. This is why Jesus spoke a lot on this topic, as in John chapter 8, where he said, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, or truly. It's not just the excitement of the beginning, fanfare, trends, and fads, excitement and astonishment. No, he says, You're truly my disciples if you continue. Well, what we find throughout the Gospels is that the people did not continue. There were times where there was great multitudes. But they would always go away in skepticism and unbelief. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you had faith as a mustard seed... Mustard seed is very small, tiny, minuscule seed that is described in the Bible as growing up to be among the trees, to be a powerful force. But Jesus says, if you just had faith like a mustard seed, not very much, right? Very little faith, and you said to a mountain, move from here to there, it will move because nothing is impossible for you if you have faith which 
only reveals how little faith we have, right? It's the reason why people go away in skepticism and unbelief, because even in our best state, we don't have very much faith. And so, what we find is Jesus marveling because of their unbelief. They were astonished. They're like, could this be? Is this he? But they begin to ask questions, right? And what were the questions? Don't we know his mother? Isn't this the carpenter? Oh, boy. There's nothing, there's nothing great about this guy. I mean, he's a carpenter. He's the son of Mary. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. Right? All this stuff. We know who this is. He's just one of us. He's, he's, he's from Galilee, too. He's from Nazareth. He's just one of those hillbillies from Nazareth, just like all the rest of the Galileans. So what I'm saying is this. Once they saw him as common, the astonishment left. Once he was familiar, the astonishment left. They were no longer excited. They were no longer focused upon the great wisdom that they had heard. Coming from perfect wisdom. See, they had heard perfect wisdom. God manifested in the flesh. But as soon as they saw him as common and ordinary... That was it. So, what is the application we should take from our text here? First thing we should understand is that even if your leaders were perfect, I don't care if civil, ecclesiastical, familial, even if your leaders were perfect, you still wouldn't want to follow them. Can you get any more perfect than Jesus? No. Did they want to follow him? No. Now, there are several reasons, obviously. Sometimes when they would hear more of his teaching and he would get down into the quick, then all of a sudden it became uncomfortable and they didn't like it. But there's other reasons as well. And first, one of the main reasons that we see here in this text is that God uses common, ordinary means, including common, ordinary men. And so Jesus was God manifested in the flesh, but God condescended in the form of a man, which is common and ordinary in this world. But that's what God uses. That's the reason why Jesus came as a man. Because God uses Common, ordinary means. God could have done something different and sent down some different heavenly type of manifestation. But he didn't. He manifested as a man. Something we're familiar familiar with. Something that is common to us. He, 
condescended to us. But we don't want God to condescend to us. We want to ascend. It's the Tower of Babel. We don't want God to condescend to us. You see, we ourselves want to ascend, but God uses common, ordinary means, including common, ordinary men. Now, Jesus was not common and ordinary in the fact that he was sinless, he was perfect, he was God manifested in the flesh, but yet, because of this commonality that they found in him, as soon as they found this commonality, they rejected him. In James chapter 5 and verse 13 through 18, we don't have time to mention much about it other than it talks about Elijah. And James is talking about the importance of prayer and that how that because of Elijah's prayer, there was no rain upon the land for three years and six months. But it says this about the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now, he's trying to encourage us to pray, showing us that, listen, Elijah was just like us. But you see, that's the thing we don't want. That's the thing we hate. We hate that. In Acts chapter 14, the apostles declare that we also are men with the same nature as you. That's a little different of a sermon than what you're going to hear on religious broadcasting. The apostles, who had a full empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it's like, hey, hey, we're, we got the same nature just like you. We're, we're, we're men just like you. We're men just like you. But on religious broadcasting, oh, no, that's not the image we want to present. And the reason is because we despise ordinary and common means. It's the reason why Israel in Psalm 107 is talking about their rebellion against God. And it says they rebelled against the words of God. Ah, It's just so common, ordinary. I don't want words. I want flashes of lightning and thunderbolts and noise and sound and smoke fire and brimstone and all these things. That's what I want. But they rebelled against the words of God because that's just ordinary. Nothing special. They despised the counsel of the Most High. They despised God's holy things. And what are his holy things? It's the things that are common and ordinary that he uses for his purpose. That's bread. Common, ordinary bread. But it's holy. Right? We despise ordinary things. And that's what God works through, is ordinary, common things. And so we despise it, we discard it, we have no reverence for it. God has set things apart for his glory. But we don't want God to condescend to us in ordinary things. We don't want authority to be delegated. We don't want sacredness to be designated. We refuse 
to believe because we want something different. The Israelites had the same problem. They couldn't enter into the promised land because of unbelief. You don't want to use God's means, you're not going to see God's power. We want something sensational for our senses, for our desires, for our imaginations. Something to tickle our fancy. Rather than God condescending to us, we want to ascend to God. We want to be as God's. To define what is good and evil, to define what is holy and unholy, to define what is sacred and not sacred. We want to make it our decision. And so in denying the common, ordinary means of God, we deny the actual power of God, which is what Paul said to Timothy, that there are those who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. So what I'm saying is this. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his relatives, and his own house. When people come to understand the familiarity and the commonality, that's when there is no honor. But when you go into a place where you are not known, it's like, oh, wow. Because we think this may be someone who's not common and ordinary. This might be the guru This might be the idol my heart can worship. But pastors and elders are men that God has delegated to lead his church in a company of pastors and elders who are men of like passions and nature just as you. The shortcomings of pastors are not a test of their superiority, but rather it is a test of our obedience. Yes, they are to be held accountable in their actions. And yes, there is to be a procedure and jurisdiction to regulate their behavior and their authority. And yes, if they are faithless and unrepentant, we should not follow wolves in sheep's clothing. But the reason why we reject that which God has set apart is because of commonality and familiarity. We don't want common means. We don't want God to condescend to us. John Calvin and I passed out that paper. And I gave you the full thing so that you could go read the whole thing. It's not the whole thing, but you know, it's, it's a more... It's a greater part than what I'm going to be able to quote here this morning. But he says, We are now to speak of the order in which the Lord has been pleased that his church should be governed. For though it is right that he alone should rule and reign in the church, and that he should preside and be conspicuous in it, and that its government should be exercised and administered solely by his word, yet as he does not dwell among us in visible presence, So as to declare his will to us by his own lips, 
he in this, as we have said, uses the ministry of men by making them, as it were, his substitutes, not by transferring his right and honor to them, but only doing his own work by their lips, just as an artificer, a skill, which is a skilled or a uh, artistic worker or craftsman, uses a tool for any purpose. And then Calvin goes on to say, That although it could have been done without any instrument, or it could have been done by angels, he gives us several reasons why God uses men, why God condescends to the ordinary means in this world. And so he says, first, in this way, he declares his condescension towards us, employing men to perform the function of his ambassadors in the world, to be interpreters of his secret will, In short, to represent his own person. And he goes on and on and on. And then finally, he gets down to the place where he says, if I can find it here. It may take me a second, sorry. I should have put it in bold. Oh, here we go. I went way over it. He says, secondly, it forms a most excellent and useful training to humility when he accustoms us to obey his word, though preached by men like ourselves, or it may be inferiors in worth. You see, it's a test of our obedience. If God was to send some sensational thing, some extraterrestrial, sensational display of his will to be received, yeah, we might think that if God would just do that, if God would just speak to me audibly, if God would just, if, if he would do it the way I want him to, I would believe. But you see, it's a test, not of the worth of the minister. He's just a man. Common, ordinary, like nature, like passions. Maybe even your inferior because most pastors are. But it trains us in humility and obedience so that we might accept the word, not the flash, not the man, not all these other things, but so that we might receive the word as if it was the word of God. It's to prove our faith. Father, we do pray that you would give us faithful ministers, but we also pray that you would give us faithful and obedient communicants of your church. They both go hand in hand. Yes, we need shepherds, faithful shepherds who will lead the sheep 
but we also need sheep who will follow the shepherds. And Lord, we pray that you would be gracious unto us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.